Elite Physique University, your source for all things physique enhancement. We got to start this off the right way. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Elite Physique University. I'm John Gorman, your host. We've got Dr. Pete Fitchin in the house joining us today. Pete, what's going on, man? How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, man. It's uh, Jason is speaking at the PEC out in Denver this weekend, so I figure this is a good time for you and I to jump on and cover this topic that this is a really, really good topic. This is something that you spoke on, oh, back in 2015, you were one of our very first speakers at the Physique Summit Conference, and you gave this talk, man, and you've given this, I don't know, numerous times all over the, <laughs> all over the country, right? Yeah, yeah, I've given, I've, I've spoken on this a few times, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so normally how we do is, uh, with this show is we start off and we say, hey, what's something new that you've learned this week? What's something cool that's kind of happened with you? I've noticed here recently, you've just been crushing it on social with your clients' placings, man. So, so what's going on with you the last week or two? Yeah, I mean, I've traveled to shows, you know, they've shows have picked up again for the fall. So I've traveled for shows three of the last four weekends. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've had what a, a client win a pro show. I've had three pro card wins. Um, I mean, even, you know, over that time, I mean, I just yesterday, I had another client win an overall in the pro card in, in men's physique in Minnesota. So um, it's been a good, good few weeks here. So I know it was slow early in the year, but it's good to see shows, you know, kicking back up again and, and people having places to compete. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you're a road warrior. I'm the same way. It seems like we're always on the road going to our client shows. How important do you feel that is to their placing? I know personally, I like to be there to control their stress, to make sure they're pumped up on time. How important is that for you as a coach? Yeah. I mean, I try to get to what I can, you know, you can't get to everyone's shows. You have someone compete in, you know, Florida or, or wherever, you know, I, I had a client compete in like Colorado this year and, um, you know, in places like that, like you can't get everywhere, but I try to get to the shows I can get to. And a lot of times if I'm going to have clients compete further away, I, I try to like, if they're in the same part of the country, kind of looking at a show around the same time, try to get them to do the same show because, you know, if I can get two, three, four people doing the same show, you know, I'll try to get there where if they all do different stuff and it's a long ways away, I, you know, I might not. Um, but yeah, I try to get to what I can. I mean, for sure. Yeah. It, it, I feel like our models are pretty close and similar. I'm the same way. I jump in the car. I try and get numerous clients to all do the same show. Um, you know, it's very rare. Do I fly to a show? I mean, it just doesn't make ec economical sense. No. You know, someone pay for a prep and then you spend 500 bucks on a ticket. It's just that part's hard. So, um, I know I personally love going to shows real quick new with me this week. Um, I, I've had some pretty good placings with clients as well. You and I are both headed to worlds next weekend yeah. in Liberty, the Kansas city area. And, and we've got, I think we've got some pro men's physique guys going to be matched up. So that'll kind of be fun from a competitive standpoint, a good natured competitive standpoint. <laughs> um, it's too bad. Cliff's not there. That'd be fun. I, I know yeah. there's been numerous times we've been at shows in Kansas city and it's me, you and Cliff standing there watching our clients on stage. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, he, he won't have anybody in those classes. But yeah, man, I've been blessed with some really good client placings. Um, I do want to let everyone know if they click on the show notes now or after the show, I am offering up my insulin sensitivity and cortisol reset class that's on Zoom. That's on October 25th at 5 p.m. Central Time. Um, last time I held that class, it sold out. And I had to create three other classes. So this one will sell out. Just shoot me an email. It's in the show notes now. And uh, the last thing I, I wanted to talk about is I brought on some new Fat Muscle Project coaches. Pete was one of the people that we were very, very fortunate to have. Um, 
Pete, welcome to the team, man. That's uh, you're you're a big addition for us. So you know, one of the things that you're going to be helping with is not only you know your clients will get good supplements and just the basic stuff that you recommend, um, but formulation, like your background and your knowledge, especially in the research part of the industry. I'm looking forward to kind of picking your brain because you know, we can always, we can always be better. So I, you know, there's stuff that we're going to have come out and I'm probably going to shoot to you and say, Hey, give me, give me your thoughts on this. So welcome to the team, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. We've got uh, Billy Conklin. Also, we added to the team. He's been a client of mine for a long time. Very, very good athlete. Um, so I'm excited to bring both of you on this week. And then I've got two other people that are in the works and uh, I'm excited to announce that coming up. So that's enough of me kind of blabbering on. Pete, I do want to give you a real quick intro, though, just from my side of this. You have your PhD in nutritional science. You're a full-time contest prep coach. You're a natural pro bodybuilder, very accomplished natural pro bodybuilder. You have your CSCS. You're a very highly sought-after speaker, and you're the author of Bodybuilding, the Complete Contest Prep Handbook. <laughs> I've got that right here for those of you watching on YouTube. Um, this is going to be linked in the show notes because... To me, this book is actually going to play kind of a key role in some of our recommendations today. It's, it's one of the best books on bodybuilding out there, especially up to date. And you co-authored that with, uh, with Cliff Wilson. So did I leave anything else out, man? I didn't say anything about family or anything like that, but what else did I leave anything out? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm married and have a dog. I mean, that's the, you know, I don't have any kids or anything crazy like that, but. <laughs> well, give, give people an idea of your background. I mean, obviously, you know, someone sees, you know, Dr. Pete Fitch and you have a PhD in nutritional science, not just are you a, a contest prep coach and your athletes obviously are crushing it. What about the research side of the industry? How passionate are you about that? How's that kind of tie into you as a coach? Yeah. I mean, so I had the opportunity when I was in grad school to do like a case study on myself during my 2012 prep, um, you know, and so we were taking measurements on me throughout prep and we, we published that. Um, you know, I had some chances to co-author a few papers um, with like Eric Helms, Eric Traxler, um, Brandon Roberts, a few other guys over the years. Um, they're also, you know, bodybuilders with, with PhDs. Um, and so, um, and so I, I've done some of that and, and then, yeah, just some of the speaking and things like that. But yeah, I, I think it's important. Um, you know, I think, I think both sides are important to be a good coach. I think you need, you need to know the science because without that, you don't really have your kind of the basics down and you know the, the experience application part's important as well and so I think putting both of those together is really important so yeah the research side I think so you know it's, it's half the equation right it's it's a very important part are you currently involved in in any research have you been talking to anybody about doing anything lately um no not at, not at the moment um I, I had a paper come out earlier in 2020 but um, no, I, at the moment, no, I was just trying to get through the end of my own prep. And then that, that moved into, uh, uh, yeah, now I'm just traveling for client shows this fall. So, um, my prep got extended a little this year because I was supposed to compete back in March and my, my show was canceled at, uh, six days out. And so we, we pushed on and, and I ended up competing in June and July. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I got to see you actually, you were here in my hometown at the Missouri state and NBC yeah. show. And uh, obviously you brought the conditioning, you won the lightweight class yeah. and uh, got to stand up there in the overall. And that's, that's always fun. That's yeah. always kind of fun to see. So I got some good pictures of you and sent them to Cliff and said, Hey man, here's, here's our boy here up here crushing it with the, with the other guys you know, with the supers and the heavies. So yeah. it was, uh, it was pretty good. So speaking of prep, let's kind of get into this. You know, the, the title of this is 
physiological changes during prep. And like I said, you gave this talk in 2015, but a lot's changed, honestly, since 2015. I kind of want to start this off and talk about the popularity of the sport, if you don't mind. Um, you know, we see tons of new classes, new organizations. What do you feel like the popularity of the sport's been like since 2010? Since 2010, I would say, you know, it really, really exploded. Like I would say early on, like 2010 to maybe like 15, 16. I mean, I, I know when I like, when I won my pro card back in 2012, I mean, we had three full open classes. And I mean, several guys in that show have gone on to like do well as pros. And, um, you know, it, it was big and, and pro, not every show was a pro qualifier. Those that were, were usually really, really competitive. Um, and yeah, natural bodybuilding really, really grew. And then I, I think it's still big, you know, like there's just, there's so many sanctions and so many shows now. Um, like the number of competitors probably as, is as high or higher than ever, but there's just so many shows and so many sanctions, but um, it's kind of cool this, this year, there's been some shows where they're as big or bigger than usual um, because there just aren't as many shows. So there, there are probably less people competing this year just because of everything going on. Um, but there's been some shows where they've been surprisingly bigger than, than I would have thought. I mean, I was at a show a couple of weeks ago when they had nine in a women's physique open class. Like when, when's the last time you saw that? Like I, I, yeah, <laughs> Not, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> in a, a drug tested show. I mean, I, I haven't. Right. So yeah. And, you know, from the MPC side of that, you know, the way this we kind of do the show is, you know, I usually cover the natural bodybuilding side. Jason covers the MPC, IFBB. I'll, I'll kind of cover that side a little bit um, because of the Missouri State and the, and the shows like that. That show was huge. People. They yeah. said it was big, twice as big as last year. Yeah. So we've got all these new categories, classics exploding, and like just everything is so popular right now that to me, I was just going to kind of echo what you said. I feel like total numbers are up, even though there's more shows when organizations spread out minus COVID um, that man, maybe it's at an all time high. We see more people dieting now than we ever had before. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, th I think so. And I think the fact that like social media, you, you see like everyone doing it too. So it may even, see, I don't know, like it seems, you know, may seem like it, but yeah, there's so many shows. Like I, I, I think if you add up the total numbers, I mean, it, it it's probably pretty high. So let's, now that we know popularity's up, let's kind of let's kind of echo that with the research. So, prior to 2015, there wasn't a ton of research, and we're going to get to some of the old school stuff. And this comes direct from your presentation that I swiped yeah. from you. We're going to talk about some of the cool stuff from the 80s and 90s that you went and found. But as far as research after 2015. Um, you know, have you been involved in any? I know Dr. Bill Campbell has been involved in a ton. He's, to, in, in yeah. my opinion, he's kind of leading the way now at University of South Florida. Yeah. He's been a guest on the show. If people want to go back and look, it's probably six or seven episodes ago. He's really, really doing some good stuff. Lauren Conlon's yeah. down there helping out as well. Just some really good stuff. Do you feel like there's been more research since 2015? Oh, yeah, there's there's been a ton. I mean, it started with, you know, Chris Foss and I were doing our case studies at the same time and didn't realize it. You know, like we, we realized we were doing almost the same study at the same time. And we both still got them published because like they were the only two that were using like modern methods at the time, you know, back when we published them and, and like in 2013, 2014-ish. And then since then, there's been a number of other case studies, even some small cohort, cohort studies um, where they even follow people and many of them like post-show and, and into the recovery period and things as well. Um, so yeah, there's been quite a bit. And then you know, there's been several papers written on, on, you know, 
contest prep, off season, you know, what we have at least for data and trained athletes as far as like ideal approaches and things. Um, you know, there's, there's still a ton, you know, Bill Campbell has had some that refeeding study come out. There's been diet break research. Um, so there, there's a ton of stuff that's come out, um, even some peaking stuff now, even um, since then. But I mean, there's still a ton more that needs to be done. I, I, I there's still going to be individuality and, 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 you know, application and experience, you know, involved as well. Still, there, there's still a long ways to go on the science side and the publishing everything side. But um, but yeah, there's been a ton since like 2013, 2014. Um, but before that, yeah, there, there wasn't much since like the 80s, 90s. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is an exciting time. I think if I could probably try and look forward to the next five or 10 years, I feel like as contest prep coaches, we're going to have the available research to us that's going to kind of really set things apart. Um, a lot of this stuff we, we already kind of know, you know, from seeing it in the trenches and we think it's right. <laughs> so I think some research will show that it is. And, you know, maybe some will come out and show, nah, that's probably not as optimal as you think. But, you know, it seems like research is always five to 10 years behind. That's the nature of the beast. But man, I'm pretty excited for the next, next five to 10 years. Yeah. I mean, there should be a, a lot of stuff. I mean, I look back, I, I just made a post on this recently about like, Hey, you know, I've been coaching full, like I graduated and I've been coaching full time. I mean, I've been coaching longer than that, but full time for five years, you know, since I've been done. And, um, you know, I was, went, made a post recently about all the, you know, the things that I've changed over the last five years in my approach. And so um, I can only imagine, you know, five, 10 years down the road. And I mean, I look back to like my first prep in 20 or in 2004, you know, 16 years ago, um, all the stuff that, you know, I do differently now. And so I, yeah, I can only imagine what like 2030 or, you know, something like that, what I'll be doing compared to now, you know, and I'll look back and be like, well, why was I doing that? You know? Yeah. And, and I love that too, because I love, I love, I have made multiple presentations over just the stupid shit I used to do back in the day. Cause dude, I was super bro. I don't, we didn't really know each other in 2010, 2011 cliff and I did, cause we were, we were button heads and, and going out with our clients, but I was super bro over here. So I actually give a lot of presentations on, you know, how I changed things over the years and started to apply research and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, th I think we're going to see a lot more than that, but let's go back in time. So to kind of set this episode up, I, I like to go back in time if we can. Let's talk about some interesting studies that, that you dug up. And we don't have to name the studies. I, I didn't grab those. You can if you remember them, but some stuff from the 80s and 90s where, dude, we talked about you saw something where the average intake was as low as like 900 calories a day back in like yeah, the like 80s women, and yeah. 90s. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Um, extremely low fat. Uh, I think on your presentation, it said nine grams of fat a day for a woman, 19 grams of fat. Yeah. Yeah. There was fat, like people were reporting fat intakes that low. Yeah. I mean, back then in the eight, like in the eighties, nineties, so that was when fat was bad. Right. And so everyone did like incredibly low fat. And I mean, if you looked at like how, like products that were marketed, right. Everything was low fat, low fat, low fat, you know, and um, you know, and fat was the enemy. And, and so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I, I've worked with clients who, you know, <clears throat> may have compete, like I've worked with older clients who may have competed back in like the nineties and, and like, that's what all of them are surprised. Like, wow, you want me to have this much fat? And it's like, well, it's not that much. It's just more than none, you know, <laughs> like yeah, 50, 50 grams of fat a day for guys, not a lot, you no, know, that's no, to me, that's kind of almost a minimum for a while. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's, it's more than like, you know, 20 grams, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess I should preface this by saying 
Would you agree with this? Most people back in the 80s and 90s, natural bodybuilding wasn't a huge sport back then. Would no. you say most most people were, were normally assisted here? That, that yeah, yeah. And they, they mentioned that in most of the studies that like they were competing in untested competitions or or like they were the people, you know, the people they were following were enhanced. Um, you know, they even mentioned in some of them. So yeah, I, I think it's probably safe to say, especially because in a lot of these case studies, the people in, still placed pretty well, um, you know, like in these untested shows, um, even with some of the methods they were using. I mean, they, they placed generally pretty well, actually. Yeah. And so I want, I want our listeners to keep that in mind, because as we start to dig into this and talk about some of the muscle loss and some of that and the ratios to fat loss, like remember, these are assisted folks that aren't going to lose as much muscle as a natural competitor. So these numbers that we're about to get into here actually aren't as bad as they probably could be. <laughs> um, so another characteristic that you found was very high protein intake. I'm, I'm not surprised by that. No. Um, not at all. Complete elimination of food groups. That was something that you know, man, I think we still see that kind of carry over today, even from yeah. the 80s and 90s. And, you know, we see a, a one set meal plan, um, these foods only, the six foods that work and stuff like that. Um, do you still have clients that come to you that that had done that prior? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the two most common things competitors cut out historically during prep are fruit and dairy um, because they're typically afraid of, you know, the the sugar in it or whatever. I, I don't know. Um, but if you look at like, if you go back and look at those studies, um, you know, you look at the, the studies on, you know, some of these competitors from the 80s and 90s, the two most common nutrient deficiencies that pop up in a lot of them are vitamin D and calcium, because these people are cutting, um, they're cutting dairy, you know, and, and, uh, I, I can't imagine if you have vitamin and mineral deficiencies that you're going to be losing, you know, you're going to be maintaining muscle, performing the best you could, dropping body fat, um, recovering uh, as good as you could if you have nutrient deficiencies. Yeah. It, and it's cool to look back at this stuff in the easy nights because that kind of sets up what we see as things kind of evolve. And we still see a lot of this stuff being done today. What about this one, man? Um, you noticed that there was high meal frequency up to 10 times a day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they ate all the time. Well, that was the you know, that was the thing They people thought that, you know, back then that the more times you ate a day, the more it stroked your metabolic rate and things like that. And I mean, research since has shown, you know, there isn't really any difference there. Um, if you look at some of like the muscle protein synthesis data, you can probably make an argument that <clears throat> really low meal frequencies or really high meal frequencies probably aren't optimal. You know, at, at this point, I could probably make an argument either direction, you know, that you're probably need, you know, the ideal is probably somewhere in the middle that like four to six ish kind of if you, based on some of the muscle protein synthesis data um, and, and you start to see some of the refractory period and, and the, you know, if you're dosing protein too close together, you might not get the same spike from the next meal and, and, and some of that. And so, um, yeah, so that 10 times a day may not have been, you know, as it, it may not have done what they thought it was doing. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, coming from a fat kid over here, somebody that didn't like being hungry when he dieted 10 years ago, I would have loved 10 meals a day because you're constantly eating. So you're, you don't have that board hunger sent in. You're basically eating like every hour and a half probably. So, um, it would have to be a really small amount though. You would think. Yeah. But at least you're eating every hour. And a half. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I definitely, I definitely don't think that's ideal. Um, obviously another thing that popped up was no carbs before bed. We yeah. still see that around to this day. I think that's kind of going away. Um, but that was pretty common. And then finally, there was a lot of binge eating reporting. And I put in my show notes here, you probably, I was like, no yeah. shit, right? Well, yeah, I, 
<laughs> I mean, if you're only eating certain foods and it's a set meal plan and you're eating 900 calories a day and you're not eating fat and, you know, like, and, and usually the binging was, at, I think, after the show, they, they were, they reported a lot of binging also. Like, I mean, generally the more restrict, I mean, eating just eating behavior patterns in general are like a pendulum. Um, and so between binging and restricting, and so the harder you swing and towards the restriction side, the harder it probably is going to swing back to the binge side. Um, and so after a show, yeah, these people were gaining ridiculous amounts of weight and, and really fast, I think 20, 30 pounds in just a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, just, just crazy, crazy amounts that, that, you know, can't be good for, I mean, it's, it's not optimal for progress, but I mean, that kind of gain that fast can't be good for overall health as well. Yeah. And so I have some of those numbers here. I pulled them from your presentation. <laughs> it said weight regain, uh, for 25 year old male on average, 30 pounds in three weeks, 19 pounds for a female in three weeks. Um, so if you're a listener and, and you, you haven't ever competed, you know, that's, Pete, I've seen that quite a yeah. bit, uh, especially with new folks, you know, as we all kind of get more into this and we get a little more, I hate to say mature, but a little more seasoned. We're used to the deficit. We're used to expect what happens post-show. Um, I'm not seeing a lot, uh, as many problems with this now these days with my clients as I did back in the day. Would you, how, how's it looking from your end? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's as bad. I think, you know, the, I think for a few reasons, I think one, because more people are talking about it. So, and, and I know I talk about it with clients, you know, like, you know, throughout prep, like the post-show, we, we got to push food up. We got to gain some weight back. You're not going to stay stage lean. You know what I mean? Like, and so they're kind of prepped for like what's to come. Um, I think that has helped. I think, you know, dieting flexibly obviously has helped so you can fit some things in during prep. I mean, you're not stuck to those six foods. Um, I think that dieting, probably dieting slowly has helped because the deficit that you've had to, you know, you're not, you're not having them in the crazy deficit. You know, if you're dropping a half a percent to a percent of body weight weekly, you know, that might be a pound, pound and a half a week. Like that, that's not a crazy deficit. You know, some of these previous preps, they were losing, you know, back in the day, three, four pounds a week throughout prep. I mean, that's a huge deficit. Like you're probably really, really hungry and tired when you're trying to lose three and four pounds a week every week. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I think, bad. yeah. And I think all of that. And then I also tend to push food up pretty quickly post-show because I've, I found that if people actually stay consistent, you can get their food really high, really fast. And a lot of the inconsistent, a lot of the really, really fast gain you see post-show is inconsistency. Um, but I mean, if someone stays consistent, you can get them up quick. And normally I give them a pretty significant bump to start because you got to get them out of a deficit back to like whatever maintenance is. So we don't need to keep losing weight, you know, and then we need to go beyond that. And so a lot of times after a show, I mean, I'll probably have clients check in with me every couple of days and like, if, hey, we're not gaining weight yet. We need to add more food. And so, you know, initially after the show, and so we can get their food really high, really fast, as long as they're consistent. Um, and, and, you know, I think when they realize that also it helped, you know what I mean? It helps the adherence because it's like, oh, I get my food super high really fast here, you know? And, and um, you know, I think just having the mentality that one meal isn't worth like, you know, keeping your food lower, it, it just becomes, becomes a bad cycle because, you, you have a meal where you binge and then you gain weight and then you don't, you try to keep your food lower because you're, you know, trying to control that gain. And then that just is restriction and that leads to more binging. And it, if you can just avoid all of that and just find some happy medium where you can get their food up to a place they can actually sustain 
and where and usually when you do that they don't gain that much weight because they're eating less than they would if they're eating uncontrollably yeah um, no i agree so, man i agree 100 percent. yeah and so yeah i, I but i long story short yeah I, I would agree i think um a lot of those things make it not as bad post-show although I have had a few situations in recent years where I've worked with someone that's come off one of those preps, like we mentioned, you know, where they dieted down fast with a ton of cardio, very low food, very restrictive. And like, I didn't do their prep. Like they started working with me after their show and almost always like, it just ends so badly. Like, um, I, it usually doesn't end well. Yeah. For me, um, I don't, I don't have to take a lot of clients, but I have a hard time turning someone away in that situation because yeah. I know it's going to be ugly. Yeah. And from a coaching standpoint, and I'll get your take on this real quick and then we'll move on to the next point. It's always the hardest client to work with because it doesn't matter how, how much we try and help them. They've got, like you said, that pendulum with yeah. all of that restriction and all the cardio and all the deficit, they're going to have that binge episode and now they have it and you're their coach. And now you have to clean that shit up and it's really, really hard um, so I, I try to not take a lot of those, those situations anymore because they just become hard as a coach and those people need help. Yeah. There's a lot of good coaches out there. I just, man, I, I, I struggle with that one. I, really I, do. I oftentimes in a situation like that too, if, if it's something that like continues and it isn't improving, um, that's where I generally recommend they work with some sort of, you know, uh, counselor or, or psychologist, um, you know, and, and, and it's always, it's always hard to like approach someone with that. Like, Hey, I think you might need to, you know, work on, on some of these underlying issues. Cause oftentimes, you know, there's underlying issues to the binging and stuff too, because, you know, if someone's hungry and they overeat due to hunger, you a lot of times see them like kind of pick and eat at things. And, you know, like if they're dieting and prep and they're hungry, like they, Oh, I, they, I, they eat a little bit extra of this or that. And that, that slows down loss and progress and stuff, but like they don't just all out binge because they're hungry. Typically, like if someone all out binges, and his throat just, you know, throws in the towel. There's usually kind of an underlying psychological, emotional component trigger. Um, I'm not a psychologist, but I, that I, I, you know, I, I understand that it's not just hunger at that point. Like there is a psychological component and um, you know, that's where I think it's important to, you know, a lot of times I refer clients to, you know, counselors, psychologists in those situations, because oftentimes it can help a ton because it helps them get at the underlying reason why, they might be binging, you know, and it, it, part of it might be the restriction, but like if, if, you know, if, but it, it, part of it, there might be something else going on also. Yeah. And sometimes just the mention to someone in an email that, Hey, you may need to see a, a professional about this is enough yeah. to kind of get them to kind of tighten it up a little bit. I've noticed yeah. as well. So, well, and, and, you know, I, I mean, I've honestly, I, I think that working with a professional through tough situations is important. Like I've worked with a counselor during hard times in my life. Like, you know, and so, because it can be a hard thing to approach someone with because they can, you know, oftentimes, you know what I mean? They take it as an insult, right? Like, you know, and it's, it's not meant to be that, like, you know, because counseling and therapy has like this negative stigma in this country. And, um, and I don't think it, it should. I mean, it's incredibly helpful. Um, just from experience. I mean, and so I think when they realize like, you know, I've, you know what I mean? Not maybe I haven't, you know, nothing binging food related on my end, but like for other things. And so, um, you know, the fact that I've gone through it, you know, it, it, you know what I mean? Like I, they can relate and, and yeah. you know, a lot of times they'll like be more open to it and it's amazing how much it can help. 
No, I agree 100%. Let, let's get back to more of the stuff from the 80s and 90s, and we're going to talk about the better ways to do things. Something else that you found that, you know, cardio of 10-plus hours of steady state a week, a lot of that um, fasted, um, yeah. that was pretty common back in the day. We still see a lot of that to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are people who do tons of cardio. I mean, it's funny because I'll have clients ask me, like, when, when are we going to add cardio? When are we going to add cardio? Like, they feel like they should be doing all this cardio during prep, and I'm like, you know, I, and don't get me wrong. I have clients who are doing cardio. I mean, they, most people have to at some point during prep, but a lot of times a lot of people asking me, well, when are we going to add cardio? When are we going to add cardio? And it's like, well, we'll add cardio when we need to, but like you're losing without it and progressing here. Like, why are we going to throw it in now? Like, let's, let's save it for when we need it. Yeah. Why? I, I like to, my clients don't do a ton of cardio. I try and keep them under 30 minutes a day. Um, some people I have to just take their, yeah. um, normally I notice it's someone that has, had a lot of dieting history or it's somebody that's probably not sticking to the plan the way that they should, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how are you hitting your macros? They're telling me a seven and a half, like, well, I'm gonna have to add cardio and offset them kind of not yeah. sticking to it. Something else that you found too was, um, Oh, where, where, where'd I go here? My note. Oh, they increased rep ranges and their strength would decrease during prep. That was super common. Yeah. I, I, my first prep in 2004, I mean, it, I was told, um, I was told like you get cut from high reps. So I did exclusively high reps and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not that I was all that strong when I started my first prep, but I'm sure I got weaker during it. Um, you know, if you, cause if you're not training those lower rep ranges, if everything's like 20 plus reps and you're, you're never putting a, you know, you're never training heavy, like strength's going to probably go down. Um, you know, if you look at like some of Brad Schoenfeld's research on like really high rep training, um, you know, you see similar hypertrophy between like sets of eight to 10 and, and super high reps, as long as you take the super high reps to failure. Um, but strength is generally better in the, the heavier group. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And then the other thing too, that we saw, um, a lot of sodium and water restriction during peak week back in the day. <laughs> so I, I actually have an interesting real quick story to tell. I had a client that competed this weekend. I'm not going to say her name. I don't know if she listened to the show or not, but it doesn't matter. I sent her her peak week. She had plenty of water, all of her normal water, all the way up to Friday night. And then she had enough starting, you know, five to six hours before stage time. She had enough with each meal and enough between meals, but not a ton. I think it was like eight ounces with a meal and like eight ounces in between total. She had about a half gallon by the time she hit the stage, not a ton. Um, I've had clients drink a hell of a lot more, but you know, I kept sodium in, I kept all that stuff in. And when I sent her her peak week, she came back with, Hey, I, I really think I want to drink a gallon on Wednesday, a half gallon on Thursday, <laughs> quarter gallon on Friday. And I'm like, I'm just, my eyes glaze over because I recognize the, the old bro peak week because I used to do those back in the day, diuretic, no salt the day of the show. And she said, there's a lot of body builders in my gym telling me that I need to do this. So I said, Hey, listen, you know, so-and-so Sally, I'll just call her Sally. <laughs> I need you to not listen to them and you need to follow my peak week. And I explained to her why we don't have to get to a peak week episode. Um, but I didn't hear from her at all. She wasn't sending me her picture. She wasn't sending me her weight. She wasn't checking in. She said she was too nervous, blah, blah, blah. She ended up winning all three of her classes that she was in. So here's, here's what happened. Um, she, I know she didn't do my peak week. She won her classes, but she would have won her classes anyway, because the peak I had wouldn't have watered her over. But now this person thinks she won because she did all these drastic things and cut her water and did all this stuff when her physique was good enough to win. 
We still see a lot of that to this day, man. <laughs> we still do. Or do, do you get much of that? Now, I haven't had anything like that happen except for, you know, in the last 10 years, like maybe once or twice. But do you get a lot of a lot of people like when you send their peak week, like, holy shit, you want me to drink all this or have salt? Yeah, I, I don't think it's quite as common because I think most people realize, at least on the, the natural side, it's a lot more common. Like you go to a, to a natural show, almost everyone's drinking water backstage. Like it, it, it's pretty common at this point. Um, NPC shows, not necessarily. Um, I right. would say most people still don't drink water. Um, some of that is some of the drugs and things like that. But even some of the people there that are taking little to nothing still, you know, are cutting water because it's just the thing that most people do for whatever reason. But, um, but uh, no, I mean, I had a show this year, I was pumping up backstage and I, you know, I was getting a really good pump and I had a guy like complaining, he couldn't get a pump. And, you know, he's like, man, I just can't get a pump. And I was like, well, what, what did you do for, you know, your peak or whatever? And, you know, he's like, well, I've had like, a lot of carbs. I had like 500 grams of carbs yesterday. And I was like, well, that's good. And I was like, I was like, what about water sodium? Oh, I, you know, I, I, everything was low salt and, and, and I haven't drank any water since yesterday. And I was like, well, there, there there's our problem. That's why we can't, you can't get a pump, <laughs> you know, you don't. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I remember that feeling backstage in 2010. The last time I was on stage, I did everything to pump up. I was even drinking syrup back then. And, you know, it's it, these days, like I'll have someone like an NPC show, like Matt Holcomb, he'll be back there drinking Gatorade and doing all this stuff. And he'll have two gallons of water by the time yeah. the night shows over. And he just looks fucking insane. Yeah. Veins everywhere, super full. And, you know, there'll be other guys walking out on stage, still chewing a candy bar in their mouth while they're walking on stage, not drinking water, thinking that that candy bar is going to help get them vascular and fill them out. Well, it's still sitting. It's not even going to be digested for another 30, 45 minutes. So um, it's just still, I mean, we still see a lot of that to this day, but I don't, I don't want to spend too much time. We've got a lot to cover here. (laughs) Here's the other thing that you found. And I thought this was pretty interesting. I hadn't seen these numbers before. So this was cool. You found that two to four pounds of fat loss would happen for every pound of muscle lost, right? So someone would lose two to four pounds and they'd lose about a pound of muscle. Now, remember, you found that these were mostly assisted athletes or they reported being in untested shows. That's a drastic number. Imagine if someone's natural. Holy shit. What's that number look like, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing to keep a couple things to keep in mind with that number too, though, one is that, that, that was two to, I think one pound of lean mass for every two to four pounds of fat. So some of that could be water, glycogen, True. organ weight, um, you know, things like that. Cause you know, organ, organ weight goes down and, and things like that. So, um, That's you know, like if, if you do a dex on someone, um, during prep, like if their limbs aren't going down, but you, you know, in lean mass, but like maybe you see some lean mass loss in their trunk, that could be something associated with, with just organ, you know, weight or something like that, um, that, you know, isn't necessarily muscle. Um, but you know, some of it's that some, yeah, the, the methods they were using for body fat were, you know, calipers, <laughs> you know, maybe underwater weighing if you're lucky back in the eighties and nineties. Um, so there were, there was some air there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, they're, they're still losing a good amount of lean mass. you know, they're probably losing muscle. I mean, um, much more, you know, because if you think about it, I mean, especially if you're a natural, I mean, think if a natural is losing three to four pounds a week, eating like a thousand calories a day, doing 10 hours of cardio a, a week and, you know, all that stuff, right? Like they, you know, exclusively high reps training and, and stuff like that. Like they, yeah, they, they would lose a ton of muscle, you know? Yeah. And then what happens is, is the other thing you found, um, you kind of alluded to this earlier, many people placed high in their classes. So yeah. now you see, 
not only are these people placing high, and maybe it's their first couple shows and their body can actually get by with going through something like that. Then they start to pass this on to everybody else is this is what you have to do for prep. And now we have this thing that just kind of still doesn't go away. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like you run over a fucking skunk and you just can't get that smell <laughs> off. Like it's still around. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people were placing high. That's just, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think too, one thing to keep in mind is it's something that everybody did um you know what i mean so like you i think you all just you know if everyone used poor methods then the best bodybuilder that used poor methods is gonna gonna win i mean i remember i mean even six eight years ago i feel like if you went into a show and you had your clients drink water it gave them like a significant advantage over everyone else because they looked better <laughs> like um i mean now everyone drinks water you know what i mean like so you, you don't have that anymore but like i remember that you know, I remember doing, you know, with clients like 2012, 2014, you know, you'd go into a show and they were drinking water and half their class or more weren't. And, and they would have a huge advantage simply for that because they were using a better method. Yeah, no, I, I remember, I remember when I switched, um, and I keep bringing Cliff up on the, on the show, but it was 2011 and my clients and his were really battling it out. And my clients weren't drinking water the day of the show. They'd have, they'd have a little, but I was loading them pretty hard and um, still sticking to the old school methods. And you know, that stuff does work. It's just not oh, yeah. going to work the best. Right. So his clients are showing up drinking water and they were just looking like freaks, like they natural guys looking like they're on drugs. Right. And I thought, okay, what's going on here? And I'm not the type of guy that's married to the way that I do things. I'm, if I get my ass kicked some way or something's better, I'm like, all right, I need to go rethink this. So I slowly start adding water in. I remember that was 2011, probably one of the most important switches that I made. Um, I do want to get into now how we can start to correct some of this stuff. So like you said, you at age 26, you went through your own prep as a case study and you measured all these different things on yourself. So not only can we talk a little bit about that, but we can talk about what you see as a coach now too, because you've been doing this for half a decade full time. Um, how crucial was it for you to go through that case study yourself to kind of learn um some of these things to influence your coaching style yeah i mean i i think it was it was good to measure all that stuff um i honestly I, it probably it almost convinced me to have clients measure less stuff because i felt like i was way more in my head than i was in a normal prep yeah. um so like for example one thing we did was do a dexa every single uh month uh and so i you know DEXA still has like three to 5% error or something like that, an individual measurement and your body fat from month to month isn't, you know, isn't changing more than a percent or two, even, you know, cause you're dieting slowly and everything. Cause Lane did my prep back then. I wasn't doing anything crazy. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, and so I was dieting and there was a month in there, like three, four months in, I was, it was getting, I was starting to get leaner and I felt like things were really starting to come together. Like you could start to see it. And, um, I had a really good, I thought it was a good month. Like my strength hadn't started really dropping yet. Um, I was, you know, I was still feeling pretty good. Uh, visually I was seeing changes. The scale was down like, you know, five pounds or whatever that month. Um, and then I did the DEXA and the DEXA said I was only down like, you know, like 0.3 or 0.4% body fat that month. And it, it just messed with my head so much I because bet. it was just the error of the measurement, right? Everything else, everything else that means something like my strength and what I look like and what the scale is doing. And you know what I mean? And all, and how I'm feeling and all of that show, you know, suggested everything was going in the right direction. It was a really good month. Um, and then I got that number and it just messed with my head. And 
man, I was just like dreading, you know what I mean? Getting them the rest of the study. And, and I noticed with clients too, when you'd have them you know, measure, like do like body fat measurements, like they put way too much stock in them. And there's way too much air in them for them to be putting that kind of stock in the measurement. And so, um, you know, like I've had situations where, um, you know, I had a client who's, who did like a, a BIA used, used like, you know, bioelectrical impedance, which has even more air. Um, and this is a few years ago. And they were freaking out because their body fat went up, you know, from like one month to the next, because those measurements have like seven to 9% air. Um, and so their body fat number went up and I was like, okay, hold on, hold on. So, okay. So since your last much, you know, we, we go through all the variables, right. And it was like, okay, so since the last time you had your, your, your test done, it's been like six weeks, uh, you're down like eight pounds body weight. Is your strength down? Well, no, they're like, no, not really. Okay. I said, okay, so you've lost eight pounds of body weight, you're not getting weaker. Uh, and, and visually, if you put your picture side by side, you, you look leaner. So why, you know what I mean? Like, why, why are we freaking out that a number said it's, you know, so I actually encourage clients to not measure body fat percentage and not worry about some of that as a result of my case study and, and then seeing the same thing in clients. I, dude, I can agree with that a hundred percent. So, you know, some of these things we're going to talk about a little bit more optimal ways to approach this. Some of these things I've noticed, you know, I'll get a client that comes to me and they'll prep a certain way and they'll have a certain stage weight. Like maybe it's a guy steps on stage at 170 pounds, for example. And then I'll take him for a couple of years, do his off season, right? But then the changes in the way that he prepped versus a 12 week, super hard prep, uh, really harsh, high cardio, low calories. And then I take him a kind of a slower prep, maybe 20 to 25 weeks, pound a week loss, which we'll t I'll get your take on that in a minute. But I've noticed that his stage weight goes up. And I, over the years, I noticed, I don't think it was because he had a great two-year off season. I think people, natural guys can put some muscle on, but if you've been training for a while, to me, normally when I see stage weight go up, it's the difference in the, the prep style. Yeah. So it's them losing less muscle over time and them losing a little bit slower. Um, have you seen that as well from your end when you take somebody on like that? Yeah. Or one thing you see a lot of times I feel like in a natural also is they might step on stage at the same weight. Um, you know, like maybe they, maybe you have someone and they compete, you know, the 175 pound guy comes back on stage and maybe he's still only like 170 pounds two years later, but maybe that Sunders, that 170 looks better, you know? And, and so, um, you know, like, like, uh, I always think of like Brian Whitaker is a great example of this. Like when the, when he first started winning worlds, if I'm not mistaken, he was like 162, 164. And I think over the years when he kept winning his class at worlds, I think he was still only like 167 or something like that. He said when he won the, the I could be wrong on these numbers, but if I remember it right, like he was only like 167 when he won the overall, like his two world titles. Um, and you know, he only gained like three to five pounds over all these years. He kept winning his class and, um, but he's looked better and better and better and better. And his methods got better and better, you know, that he was using, you know, he started working with guys like, like Lane and like Mike Zordos and, and, you know, the methodologies got better and better and better. And, you know, he just kept looking better even at the same weight. And I think that's a really, you know, great example too, you know, that it, the scale weight, the stage weight might not even have to go up for someone to look better at it, you know, even especially those elite athletes. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I noticed one thing too, let's, let's talk about training. Um, we see a lot of people that used to train four times a week, maybe body parts 
once a week. Um, we've talked a little bit about this on the show and in some training episodes, but you know, if someone's dieting down, what's your take on training body parts once a week during, during a prep once a week, four times a week, like chest, you know how it is the old school bro split, um, which has built a lot of muscle on people. There's nothing wrong with the split, but when you're dieting down, what's your thoughts on holding on to muscle training five to six days a week versus just training four? Yeah. Um, I think it depends on the person and the situation. Cause I, you know, I think it's important to look at, are you actually recovering? I can, I just looking at back at my prep, you know, like my, when my prep got extended and I was, I just, I got really, you know, it, there was a lot of time spent really lean and my recovery wasn't that great. And I kept forcing six days a week, you know, hitting everything twice a week. And in hindsight, that was a terrible idea. Like I wasn't recovering. Like there were weeks I'd go in to hit something the second time. And I'm like, why am I here? Other than the fact that I feel like I need to expend some more calories, you know, like, like I wasn't getting quality out of it. Um, I've actually spun it back this off season so far to where I'm, I'm training. I am doing the one body part, you know, body part once a week, just four workouts a, you know, a week first, because I just couldn't recover from anything coming out of my shows. Like I just wasn't recovering. Um, and now like my strength's still going up. Like I'm actually making progress. So I'm like, let's see how far this goes. And don't get me wrong. Like I'm, I'm going to have to go back to training body parts more frequently and, and add more days and more frequency and, and more stuff in. Um, but I, you know, I think, I think it all has its place. And I think you also need to pay attention to, um, like I said, how is, how is someone recovering? How are they progressing and, and what are they actually doing in the gym? Um, you know, if someone's training really, really intense, um, you know, if, if there's a lot of two failures, super intense, you know, heavy, heavy train, you know, someone who's super strong, um, you know, they, that might take some more recovery or if they're training with a lot of volume that might take some more recovery or, you know, if they're dieting their you know, their recovery might not be as high or, you know, and, and I think a lot of times when I have clients come to me and they'll, you know, they'll be on the fence. Do they want me to program their training or not? You know, a lot of times what I ask them is, well, are, are you, you know, progressing with what you're doing and, and are you enjoying it? You know, and if they're, they're like, yeah, I'm getting stronger, whatever, keep going with it. Like until you stop, you know, stop progressing. Like, um, you know, I, but if someone is, you know, if they're like, no, I'm not seeing much progress. Okay. Let's take a look at what you're doing. How can we make this better? Um, you know? And, and so, yeah, I, I think there's, yeah, you know, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess I don't have a definitive answer on that one because I, I think it can, it depends on the situation. Yeah. Um, Cause I can tell you just after my shows, I, I just wasn't recovering. Like I was trying to force six days a week at the end of prep and it, in hindsight, it was a terrible idea. Like I probably would have been better off training four or five days. Yeah. I, I've always had it kind of stuck in my head. You know, if somebody can train their body parts twice a week while they're dieting down yeah. um, to spike muscle protein synthesis twice yeah. a week to help them hold on to that muscle, as long as they're recovering, yeah. I've always kind of went with that. Um, but I'm also, yeah, that's usually my, that's usually my go-to is, is, you know, I think a default is usually twice a week, you know, is probably a good starting point for most people. Yeah. And I, you know, I just, I almost wonder, you know, if someone gets all the way lean stage condition, you're starting to reverse into shows, maybe pulling back to four days a week to drop cortisol and let your body actually recover. It's not like, it's not like you're going to lose muscle. You're not, you're, you're increasing food. I almost wonder if that just wouldn't be better for joints and everything else. Well, and, and I think one thing to look at too is how much cardio is that person doing? Like, you know, if you're doing, you know, early on in prep, okay, so you're eating, eating a good amount of food. Um, you know, you're not really doing much cardio. You're still at a body fat percentage that's sustainable where you feel good. You can do six days a week and recover. You know what I mean? If you're rolling with six days a week, you're recovering, you're feeling good. Um, but as that cardio amount goes up, as food goes down, as you get leaner, um, 
you may have to back off a little bit, you know what I mean, on something, whether that be reducing the frequency, maybe pulling volume back a little bit. May, you know, I, I hate to pull intensity back. That's one thing I would try to keep up if at all possible. Cause I mean, that's honestly, I think that's probably the, one of the biggest things for holding muscle during prep is continuing to train intense, you know, you know, Ivly and um, training hard. I mean, it, but you know, something you may have to get pulled back if you're finding you're not recovering. Um, but like I said, a lot of times the first thing I go back to is, is the person actually getting stronger or like during prep, you know, are they at least maintaining strength as we're going, you know, if they're a natural prepping for a show, you know, maybe they won't be by the end, but like, you know, that, those are things I, that's kind of where I would start, you know, and then if the answer is no, obviously that's where I would look to probably be changing something. Yeah, I agree. Hey, what we're going to do here is we're going to go ahead and end this. This is going to be part one. You guys stay tuned next week for part two. We're going to get back into this. We've got a lot to cover still cardio, rate of loss, all the different things that go down and, and up testosterone, insulin, cortisol, thyroid hormone, ghrelin. We're going to, we haven't talked a lot about ghrelin on the show. And then we're going to talk about advice for people as they start their next prep. So, uh, Pete, thanks for being on. We're going to get off here, but actually in the real world, you and I are about to jump back on and start part <laughs> two. So you guys uh, check out the show notes for all of Pete's information, his social media, his website, the link to his book, my email for the insulin sensitivity um, class that's getting ready to happen on 1025. Um, so for myself and Pete, we'll be back here in about a week. Later, guys.